people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What, uh, an anti-fascist podcast about the far right. We're here today talking about the most recent two demonstrations that have happened in London, anti-fascist demonstrations, and their corresponding three Tommy demonstrations. We're here with Ella. Hello. From the Feminist Anti-Fascist Assembly. And with Lily. Hello. From London Anti-Fascist Assembly. And so, I'm, I'm, I'm here too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, fine. Um, my name's Sam. That was Alex, you just heard. There have been two anti-fascist mobilisations in August of 2019. One on the 3rd, one on the 24th. They're both against Free Tommy demos. So Free Tommy happened last year as well, 2018. Um, it's a series of really quite large demonstrations happening in central London. This year it was a lot smaller. Um, maybe we could talk about why that is, like what's happened uh, in the far right. What's happened in the far right that means that they are now less operationally effective than they were in 2018. So I think... There's there's several factors going on. I feel like the loss. I think as we've said before, the loss of the of of Tommy Robinson's one million like Facebook page um, has has gone a long way. They've tried to compensate. They've got this email list. They've set up their own website, and they've got this Telegram channel. But it's just a matter of scale. It's much smaller than what it was last time. Like um, fifty thousand people on a Telegram is cool, but then. Telegram people don't check their telegrams as often, um, and this, the difference between fifty thousand and a million means that the like out the outlying effects of people sharing and recommending and and the the outlying waves of people getting drawn into this thing is much much less. Um, we we did see that in a knock on effect on the third, which which I actually attended. I um kind of walked around the the, the free Tommy demonstration and talked to a bunch of people and. Seemed to me that it was reverting to like the older crowd of like more committed Tommy fans fans from back from the EDL. Um, it was much older um, in kind of you know composition, age composition, and obviously extremely white. But there was like a, in, it was very much felt like an echo of the EDL rather than uh, like some kind of vital um, force in on the British far right. There was also like an immense sense of confusion. I thought in that demo in the far right. So I saw a lot of people uh, walking around. Um, I was also kind of in the crowd with the Tony, free Tony people. Um, there was uh, people with like, don't tread on me, this kind of snake meme, no step on snack. Um, great meme. There, and there's like a kind of a sense that there was just like a, a total political chaos about like who was here and who wasn't there in the way that there was no real sense of focus like there had been on the DFLA's focus on like, grooming gang issues or the kind of like supposed grooming gang stuff. And there was no focus like there was on the Free Tommy stuff. It just felt like a kind of a, a random collection of people who had been brought out onto the street without any kind of clear political purpose. That was on the 3rd. That's maybe why there was such a sl even smaller turnout on the 24th, three weeks later. Yeah, I really think they've lost a lot of their political, a lot of their political coherence that they had kind of rallied around the kind of, yeah, supposed kind of grooming gangs and... They had like quite a clear political line at one point, which I think meant people were willing to mobilise because they actually were quite a lot less explicitly far right, although they were still coming out with a lot of kind of racist, very far right ideas. It was less obvious in some ways. So they were drawing much broader crowds. And I think that like political disunity and yeah, no real clear message. So the one we had last weekend was just 
it was supposedly a free Tommy demo, but it was at the BBC and most of the chants were about the BBC being paedophiles for like, there was no clear like rallying message behind any of it. Um, I think that in part, that kind of political falling apart has in part come from some really successful organising um, in the latter half of last year, which was not just about blocking people on the streets, but about developing really clear counters to those narratives, which they which they then kind of lost control of quite quickly. So you see with kind of feminist anti-fascist assembly coming in and like actually intervening on what they're saying around the idea of grooming gangs. Absolutely. And also um, even like the, 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 the free Tommy kind of message as it is today, like with the, the whole idea about contempt of court and what he did and the reporting thing, it's much more convoluted. It's much more kind of uh, the, uh, uh, taken back from like those kind of quite vital on the far right issues like grooming gangs or even Brexit. It's it's kind of a bit wonky with the law, like, like a legal wonk kind of situation where people are having to like... Um, interpret like an illegal arcane legal process in order to like construe some kind of reason why tommy is tommy robinson is um you know unjustifiably persecuted i mean if you look at the bare facts of the case as we laid out in a previous episode he i mean whatever you think about prisons he, he'd clearly committed an offence serious enough to be warranted sent to prison and it's very difficult it's very easy for his like he's like very hardcore fan base to like take it on tommy's a political prisoner we love tommy but for a wider layer of that kind of crowd that he pulled last year like the the ukip crowd who are now like much less pro tommy um it's not it's much harder to accept in many ways i feel it's also just to repeat Right? It's just like, we've done this. We did this last summer. What are we doing? There's exactly, there's no progression, there's no movement. And of course, in that intervening time period, what's also appeared for the far right, which of course was also visible in December 2018, last year, which was the kind of the Brexit kind of crunch time. Though I think there's a sense in which the kind of the hopes of the far right have maybe even shifted back towards kind of political norm- normalcy in that they believe that they, like they believe because they have this sense, as you can see from their conflation of like the BBC with like the court system, with like you know prisons and all these kind of things, the idea that there's a kind of huge state conspiracy, because they believe these things are all interconnected. They also, I think, to some extent, believe that Boris Johnson becoming prime minister is a way of them getting what they actually want about, say, Brexit. And so the, it's just the issue has shifted. Tory Robertson is no longer this kind of like thing or this person who's able to mobilise the far right because there are other more pressing concerns and. Tory Robertson doesn't have like a kind of a doesn't have anything particularly novel to say on like the issue of of Brexit. So it just seems like the the far right kind of shifted their attentions. Maybe I'm you're looking looking skeptical about that, Alex. Um, I, can't, I wasn't even listening to what you're saying. So. Classic stuff. <laughs> that goes in the podcast. No, it doesn't. It shouldn't go in the podcast. That was miles away. Something, something. Brexit. Okay, Lily, your thoughts on the uh, falling apart of the far right. Or well, at least I mean, the Tommy, stuff. Tommy Robinson never had any clear politics. Like there was never a really, you know, like he's not a political thinker. He's just, you know, like selling himself as a brand. Okay, but that brand is attached to, like, some quite specific notions often, or it's or it's attached to an ability to mobilize um, in a kind of like uh, unexpressed, effective kind of like emotions-based like racist terrain so it, it, I, I think like there is a political content to Ty Robertson like quite like a definite one it's it's able to mobilize things that are actually really really diverse because most people on the far right don't have a really well organized system of thinking but I do think there is like political content what he does 
I don't really. Like the, because the thing is like, <clears throat> like he's tried to get these like more respectable political positions and that never works because there is no clear message. You know, like he he's able to mobilize, but there is no, um, it doesn't fit into any of the, the, the existing parties and he's too much of a, you know, like, it's just all about him. So it doesn't really... Like, I don't, I don't see him as a political figure. So I think that it is all about him in, like, one quite specific way. Tommy Robertson is a kind of, like, a lens through which, like, people can see the world and he positions himself as the controller of the lens. So he positions himself as the kind of the person who is kind of colouring in everything you see and he positions himself as the kind of political authority. That goes through every single level of the way he operates, right? So at the level of kind of, like, where he holds the camera on a live stream, like it's all him, even when there's events happening, like, immediately in front of him. He never shows you anyone else on the live stream. It's just him. You're just watching this this man over and over again. I think that's what he's doing at kind of every level. But I think that, that lens has like an enormous amount of political content. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. And I think Tommy Robinson actually operates in a different way to a lot of the people who have kind of led the Free Tommy movement. Um, where I think he he does think far more clearly about kind of what political image he wants to get across, what tactics he wants. I think that might be why they called off um, the official demo on the 24th, because I think Tommy Robinson gets worried about image and has really thought through kind of in a very political way what the image he wants is. In a way, I think people like Danny Tomo maybe do far less. I think they're far less strategic thinkers. Um, So, yeah, I think Tommy is different from a lot of... I get what you're saying. He's not a party political person, but I think... He does have very clear political goals as well as personal ones. I think, yeah. Well, you can definitely see that if you just, if we just kind of split up the third and the twenty fourth. I feel like if Tommy Robinson had been much more involved in the third, or at least uh, had been had been organising demonstra- his own demonstration on the outside, then you wouldn't have had this kind of chaotic kind of everyone all the the, the far right running around different versions of Oxford, different places around Oxford Circus. Um, occasionally throwing chairs at police, it would have been much more stake-managed, it would have worked much more closely with the police. And I don't think Tommy Robinson really trusts his lieutenants, which are Danny Tomo, like you said, Avi Yemeni and uh, uh, Richard Inman, to be able to do that kind of negotiation with the and, police. Uh, big Mark. Big Mark. Just going back to what you're saying about him not being a political figure, I feel like in many ways he... We talked about this a bit on the podcast with Jens Poulter, in that he's not like a committed ideologue. In that he's quite, he would be. I I personally think he'd be quite happy um, to drop the whole far right activist media personality game and go and live in obscurity um, once he's made enough money. Um, and that's supposed. And he's, he's not trying to advance a particular political cause or movement. He's he's a kind of. A, building himself as, as a, like an avatar, a far-right celebrity. Um, but you can contrast him with people like Nick Griffin, who is, you know, complete obscurity now and is, has been for the last nine years. He's still, like, plotting and thinking through, like, kind of how to advance a fascist cause. Um, he recently got kicked out of Hungary for, for doing this, and he's, he's, you know, he's a thinker on the far-right, and he's, like, really very committed, for, and he will be for the rest of his life. Tommy Robinson, I feel, is less so. Um, we... we and I think that's maybe something of what you were saying. Yeah, because I don't think that there is like a clear, uh, uh, like a clear path through what he's saying, and it always changes. 
you know, like at the moment, it's like like he's this martyr um, that has been unjustly uh, imprisoned, and it's against you know like the freedom of speech and all that bullshit. Um, but when Brexit was more usable, it was about Brexit and and you know like uh, the the bad deal and and Brexit. You know, like at the same time being a good thing and a bad thing. But there's a coherent English nationalism here, in which like obviousness is betrayed by like the establishment right and it's betrayed by the establishment because of their not because like a conspiracy i don't think he's like a kind of a he's not like a great replacement staff conspiracist Mm -hmm. i mean i think he is actually like he's very careful about his language as you would be like a media figure but um he has a couple of times in some of his youtube videos like talked explicitly about the great replacement about muslims coming in and he used that particular phrase as well this is just around the time when generation identity were kind of courting him to be the the leader of the uk branch um I feel there is a kind of like overarching kind of conspiratorial aspect to his politics, which is a much harder sell um, to like a, a broader range of like reactionary British people than just kind of appealing to their racist sentiments about Muslims or their fears about being um, um, uh, moved out of their communities by immigrants or whatever. Which there is, is what? like a wider kind of pedo state QAnon style thing that he's going for, um, of which he is the, you know, heroic exposer of and the reason why he's being persecuted underlying a lot of these politics the grooming gangs gets covered up by the the local government and the state and the bbc are to have their part in, in covering it up and uh, white people are being replaced in their own homes by uh, people from somalia and you know uh, pakistan and um it, it, that is a that kind of like extra layer of conspiracy is much harder for I feel for like your middle England uh, uh, village dweller to accept in yeah. many ways, especially when they're, they're, they're living in their white only village and haven't seen a Muslim for a long time. Which is like one of the reasons why there was a kind of a big uh, a kind of fracture with the DFLA, right? Who were like less amenable to this kind of conspiratorial thinking, I think. Yeah, and I think coming back to what we were talking about originally of why we're seeing numbers drop as that comes more to the fore of the movement. Or chicken and egg, I guess, what comes first. The fact they turn more towards that or the fact their numbers are dropped so the people left mm. are the people who, yeah, like there was a lot of QAnon stuff out on the steps of the Portland place at the weekend. Do you, do you know anything? Do you, want to, do you want to quickly explain about QAnon? Do you? I don't know the details, so someone else okay, might so... be a better place to explain <laughs> Sam has been keeping up on all QAnon news since it started. You're really? really into it, aren't you? Okay, so QAnon is an online conspiracy that is um, uh, claims that there is a kind of a very tangled web of conspiracy uh, that is going on inside the American state and indeed across the world, but mostly fixated on the American state. And it began sometime in the early Trump presidency or just before. And the idea is basically that this conspiracy is being fought by Donald Trump, who is um, single-handedly kind of playing 4D, 5D, 6D chess. And he is um, taking down this conspiracy. And this is, I think, a kind of a way in which the... um, the far-right figure who is kind of put upon by the state, like Tommy Robertson wants to present himself as, the way that figure can continue to understand themselves as persecuted by the state, even when they have state power. And so fascism, even in its like state form, I don't think Trump's fascist necessarily, fascism, even in its state form, can maintain its sense of being a movement, or it can maintain its like vitality as like a movement form. That's my sense of how QAnon functions in the fascist landscape. Not that people who are in QAnon are necessarily fascist. What kind of conspiracy marks out on the far right? What it, what it tells you about someone 
is not necessarily that they're just anti-Semitic, but that they are like a much more committed ideologue, I think, than people who are not uh, conspiratorial. Because in order to think about conspiracy requires you to have like a sense of the kind of the world stage of politics on which like kind of dark forces are moving. And there's an underlying conspiracy to a lot of fascist thinking and in, in it always goes down to this cable of Jewish Jewish people controlling the world. Um, and and that is like the uh, conspiracy theory of our time. Totally, yeah. So I didn't go to the Dead on the 24th because I uh, passed out, had an epileptic fit, um, had to go to the hospital, shout out to the NHS, shout out to my sister for taking me to the hospital, pick up the NHS. Um, let's talk about the third. Um, yeah, I think the third was interesting. It was lower numbers than we saw at the end of last year, but it was still 500 people, which is not, which is considerably bigger than we were last summer. If we, if we go back a bit further, um, we basically had two really big mobilizations towards the end of last year, but before that we were smaller than we were on the third. Um, so I think not seeing it as a complete loss of numbers is a good thing. I think. On the third, we were tactically really solid. We kept people safe. No one was arrested, um, but we were massively policed. And that's actually the same is true of both, of the level of public order policing we're seeing against us is enormous. It's the TSG, the riot cops, it's vans, it's horses. And the current strategy, as far as I can tell, from the police force is keep really tight around an anti-fascist block and basically let the far right wander around central London, um, which is obviously a tactic to keep the groups apart, but uh, also obviously has a quite a clear political bent to it from the Met. Well, yeah, I mean, again, that's different to to October, where basically um, a lot of groups led by FAF managed to like manoeuvre themselves under the eye of the police, basically, to block a... Uh, the, the DFLA march, which is something which, which was not possible on the third or or the twenty fourth, um, if we'd had the same, even if we'd had the same numbers, I feel, um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel a bit conflicted about this, like kind of police protects the fascist kind of narrative because, um, I mean, they're saying the same. They're saying that the 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 far right, their uh, rhetoric is that um, the police are, uh, you know, like, uh, treat us much nicer than them and and uh, block them from doing anything. Who, who the, the police reality, say the far right do? Yeah. No, the far right say the police do. The, the police that do. the police protect yeah. us. Uh, the anti-fascists. Yeah. And the police are, you know, like the, the police are anti-fascist. I mean, these like these kind of like narratives, dirty lefties. these kind of things, things. I know it's a really, really favourite chant and police protect the who protects the fascists. But you know, on the third, the police weren't weren't particularly protecting the fascists. Really, they were arresting the fascists, and the fascists were throwing chairs at them. It was a, it was quite an anti-police demonstration in that kind of regard. And and I wasn't I wasn't there for the twenty fourth, so I, I can't speak to that. But um, I feel like the police. Um, the public order police are trying to keep the peace, and they they keep it extremely violently. Um, and and uh, I I don't feel like there's a kind of a, a one one protecting one side more than the other. They want to keep groups apart. They want to keep people buying stuff in Oxford Street. So on the third, um, the fascists had a kind of free reign around London. They this is. People should go look at the Russia Today live stream, which is seven hours long, and they end up on the South Bank and then going up another bridge. It's it's quite an extensive kind of kind of 
trek across London. And so the 24th, how, 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 do you, how would you kind of contrast it to the 3rd and what kind of went down there? So I had to leave halfway through the day on the 24th, so I can't speak for the whole demo. Um, but I think the real difference was numbers. Have we seen a huge loss of numbers over three weeks? I think that was could have been a lot of different things. I think it was partly the messaging comp becomes confused when the far right call off their official demo. We say ours is still on, but I think a lot of people go, if they've called off theirs, their numbers are going to be low, which was true. I think both, we've all seen a huge loss in numbers. I think like, well, I mean, the far right since last summer have gone down from 15,000 to maybe a hundred at a push, um, which is obviously like a huge win, but um, we do need to look at what went on with our numbers on Saturday. Um, Cause the, and also then because then it's very easy for police to essentially push people onto the pavement in a kettle um and just hold it out and i think and that's essentially what happened which is obviously where we we could see the far right on the steps of portland place but they were on the steps of portland place and we were on the pavement like it's uh it's not a great it's a demoralizing place to be um but I think we probably, and Lily, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, I think probably we outnumbered them still. Yeah. On the 3rd, we were outnumbered yeah. by the far right. But uh, on the 24th, we outnumbered them because we were probably 200, 250 at a push. And they were barely 100, if even that, probably less. Somebody counted them and said at one point that there were 60. I mean, it's not a good look for them if they can literally be counted. What's next for Laffer? Where, where, where are you going to go from here? Yeah, I mean, we're going to have a debrief um, tomorrow, uh, go through everything, compare it with the 24th, um, see what the tactics are that we need to change to be more successful, how we get more people aboard, how we do these public education um, sessions, um, organise more open assemblies, um, and Faf has also talked about uh, having another assembly and people are quite up for that. And they were suggesting t- um, in September, but let's see. Um, I feel like it, it feels very, very soon, but um, I feel it's really important to revitalize Faf and um, have this like a feminist look and a feminist political analysis of the far right um, to also be more effective in our rhetoric and and, um, to keep pushing that as well. But the thing is, like, the same people can't organise everything. I think also looking out for LAFA, hopefully for some of the more local organising, I think that's hopefully... I think that's what people have been wanting to do for a while and kept on kind of getting sidetracked into big demo organising. So I'm... I'm hopeful that um, also people might be able to go to meetings near them. There was a um, an attack on Owen Jones about two weeks ago. He was attacked mm. um, on his birthday. On his birthday by some people from the far right, and I mean, I think I don't. Well, I think he was assumed that they were far right. Um, but there, there were. I mean, okay. There was a a bit in the in the chat uh, in the Telegram group that we were talking about earlier, Tony Roberts' Telegram group, where someone says we need to sort or teach Owen Jones a lesson or something like that. And I kind of wondered why on the 24th, because my sense of why the numbers drop from last year is mostly about political messaging and the lack yeah. of political messaging and the lack mm-hmm. of a sense of a coherent alternate, a coher- opposing something coherently. Yeah. And in part that's a problem because 
uh, Danny Tomo has absolutely no sense of what he's doing. So, like, he doesn't have a political message. He just I mean, like, Danny oh. Tomo got arrested on the third. Yeah. yeah. So it's just like, oh, this thing here is now happening. Yeah. There's no sense of it. What, what, why it's happening and therefore it's very difficult to oppose politically yeah no sharp political messaging was much easier when you had like um, the DFLA's like grooming gang narrative we could yeah. then come back with really sharp counter messaging when like we were saying earlier their political coherence has been destroyed it makes it much harder for I mean, us to he's like epitomising Danny Thomas impromptu speech he did after the sentencing where he was like we're going to get all the groups together we're going to get Britain first and UKIP and you know uh, for gangs. Britain and biker gangs the biker gangs for whatever and it's just a laundry list of all the people, most of whom hate each other and would never come together to support Tommy Robinson. It's, it's kind of that kind of political lack of ability, which is symptomatic of Danny Thomas, like kind of bad decision making across his life, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, I've got something else to say about the 24th. I think as we see far right numbers decreasing, like we were saying earlier, you get more into the conspiracy theory, but you also get more into the really hardened far right like what we've seen a lot of, of photos since of people being id'd on the day a kind of chelsea headhunter types kind of the real like hardened neo-nazis that there were several nazi salutes thrown up um it's that's what's left is that core and i think that's obviously so it's not being complacent when numbers are down because what's left is a really hard group because there's also this alternate kind of political trend, which is like people being radicalised, which is talked about, people being radicalised on the internet and then going out and shooting people, which all, you know, all the opposition in big demonstrations is not going to help when you've got these kind of national action style little grouplets across the country who are being constantly harassed by the state, but we have no idea about or have no answer to. We, are, we, have dem we, we oppose demonstrations, we don't oppose, um, you know, people plotting terrorist attacks or whatever, which is a... A whole other, obviously, it's a whole other issue, but there's that that kind of trend as well, which which like feeds into like the more extreme nature of what's going on. So, Lily, you're you're an organizer in uh, the London Anti-Fascist Assembly, which I believe was set up earlier this year. Um, do you want to quickly uh, tell us a bit about? Well, maybe why it was set up and, and what it was trying to achieve when it was set up. I mean, I got involved when I think the decision was already made um, to start um, building it because um, I was only in, involved in, in anti-fascist organizing since um, October last year due to going to the feminist anti-fascist um, assemblies demo on the 13th of um, October. I mean, my understanding of it is that uh, due to the demos uh, last summer that were so huge um, from the far right, where like 15,000 people uh, marched on the streets, there was an understanding that um, anti-fascist and anti-racist groups needs to come together and organize as a coalition or as an assembly um, so that we have bigger numbers on the streets and can have an effective uh, response to the far right and um, are able to form um, also a political analysis of them and uh, through that be more effective in, in um, fighting them. The aim is to be a mass mobilizing um, platform uh, we're not quite there yet, uh, but I think it's like something closer to like, for instance, in Berlin, uh, they're they're able to mobilize hundreds of thousands of people at a short notice on the streets. And it's, you know, like families, kids, dogs, uh, grannies, everybody. Um, and they feel that it's their duty to be on the streets and um, oppose the far right or racists or, or whoever um, they're... they're uh, 
counter-protesting. And here it's kind of like we get hundreds of thousands of people on the streets against Brexit and all this like liberal bullshit um, where it's like a white people's family day out, a little throw through central London, which doesn't really do anything. Even if there's a million people on the street, it doesn't do anything. It didn't stop the Iraq war either. So it's more like a, it's a sign that people are unhappy, but it's people who go on demos maybe once or twice a year. And then they feel that they've done something, but they don't organize and don't effectively come together and build movements. They just go to these demos and then they feel like they've done their good duty of the day. Um, <clears throat> and anti-fascist organizing is more like we have a direct goal in stopping the far right from organizing and opposing them on the streets when, I mean, at the moment they're really small. So this is a good moment to, to be on the streets and, and um, get bigger numbers and effectively oppose them. So that was basically trying to do that, that we can get much, much, much bigger numbers on the streets and people start understanding themselves as everyday anti-fascists, that it's every citizen's duty to uh, be out on the streets and um, oppose them. And it isn't just about demos. It's about community organizing and benefit gigs and uh, street stalls. And I was going to kind of go back, go back briefly to... Um, kind of origins of Laffer and I think it did come in a lot of ways out of the two demos towards the end of last year the one in October and December which both showed which were kind of both led by the feminist anti-fascist assembly which showed the success of kind of assembly style organizing and like real work on coalition building moving away from black bloc tactics not that black bloc doesn't have a place I think it does but it can't be the be all and end all and like that and it does exclude a lot of people from the organizing we're doing if you want to build a mass movement it's not going to be a black block um and i think the kind of successes in terms of numbers of those two demos were part of the, that kind of early formation of laffer and i think it was exciting i think we're not there yet in terms of having a mass movement obviously but we did in the first meeting the first open laffer assembly there were well over 100 people which you don't see in london yet it's not tens of thousands on the streets but it's yeah there were 150 yeah it's a big growth from what we're used to seeing yeah and i think it's interesting that we you you both refer back to feminist anti-fascist assembly because i feel like Mm -hmm. laffer has taken a a lot of the strengths from that like the um involvement of a of a of like a broad group of people um these kind of big kind of very exciting public meetings which are quite inspiring when you to, to participate in mm-hmm. a lot of the times um but there's also kind of like a there's also like a kind of weakness within that assembly model without extra stuff going on um i feel like faf isn't particularly active right now um mm-hmm. and laffer is also i feel struggled with that kind of how do you get a lot of people who, loads of people who come to assemblies and make them become organizers or make them feel like they want to become organizers and how do you kind of sustain like a a wider like political grouping or like you said coalition building uh, beyond the kind of assembly form which i think we we have struggled with in many ways um i kind of i kind of look to like places like portland um where they have you know this road city anti-fire which are your kind of laugh style direct action kind of closed group and you have popular mobilization which is a much more kind of a laugher based uh thing of um building a coalition getting lots of people into the streets and i feel like it works so well there because these groups are working much more in synergy with each other and i feel at the moment there's a kind of 
very weird split going on in anti-fascism between a I don't know how to describe it between an old guard and a new people or you know like a I don't know how, but I feel like we need to start going towards kind of building those bridges between previous generations and other styles of anti-fascism with laughter and making each other think that they're important and needed because I think they are yeah. my sense of the um split is in anti-fascism which I think is totally that and needs to be like addressed kind of uh, honestly it's uh, unfortunate we only have two people from um one side of that split on and not anyone from the other side of the split but not not not, not that we're saying that you're you're you are the splitters or the uh, activist splits or whatever no but like as in as in like the split the split seems internal to a moment of struggle that happened five years ago yeah i mean i completely agree on the thing of i think there needs to be a coming together of those two things because i think the two strategies actually do kind of rely on each other to work um and I don't think they can work completely separately from each other. Um, I think that was part of maybe what Laffer originally was hoping to do and hasn't really managed to do at this point. But I think we do need to start having these conversations out. Like, I think literally just getting people in the same room, because I think it's often not a split where the groups are even hostile to each other. I mean, there are probably individuals that are, but I think as a whole, the two separate groups are not hostile, but they're just never in the same room they're doing their own separate things when you say they, they need each other do you mean that they they need each other in the sense that some demos are going to be like this and some demos are going to be like the other one or do you think that they need each other in the sense that when you organize a demo it's possible to have like a kind of an autonomous black block which one of these two things or both um yeah both i think because i think there's organizing big broad mobilizations you can't do it short notice if you want to have if you want to be countering every single far-right demo, which I'm not actually convinced is necessarily the right thing to do strategically, but if that's what you want to be doing, you're not going to be able to do that with a huge base because people you're not going to get thousands and thousands of people out in London with one week notice, two weeks notice. But I also think the big mobilisations we did and the big ones in the second half of last year did have a black block, like a smaller one than you sometimes get. But I think it's good. There's a lot of really experienced anti-fascists who like really know what they're doing on the streets and are really good to have around those mobilizations um i don't think they should be organized entirely apart from each other we have two different tendencies in laffa one is the people who want action and who want action now and who want to be on the streets and who want to fight the fascists and the other group is like let's think about strategies and you know like we need to organize training and you know like like let's just kind of like slow it down a little bit and think about it more and develop it more um and the thing is like it doesn't mean that one or the other tendency has to win but we have to figure out how they can exist at the same time so that both can build and both can get stronger and bigger but we can't we can't go like no 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 this this is too extreme and this we have to go another way or you know like we need to be more militant it has to satisfy both sides Absolutely. and we haven't figured that that out yet i think that how we, we yeah. satisfy both tendencies that's a the kind of classic organizational like design split right there's an organization part of an organization whose purpose is to fill the goals of the organization and there's part of an organization whose goals is to reproduce and structure the organization in such a way that it can fulfill its goals. And these are actually two quite opposed and actually quite antagonistic parts in lots of organizations. Mm -hmm. And the danger of one of the, of the one that's just wants to kind of fulfill now, the danger of that is that um, there's no organization in like two months time. Mm -hmm. And the danger of the other one winning or becoming kind of dominant is that you end up with doing an enormous amount of busy work 
and nothing happens. Yeah, and, yeah, just you know, be yeah. this completely impotent organization yeah. if everybody just kind of like looks at each other. You both mentioned that uh, the <clears throat> demonstrations, these last two demonstrations have been quite small from anti-fascist um, in comparison to like the ones last year. And I just wondered if you could kind of talk about why you thought that was and how we can go about kind of rebuilding that kind of momentum and presence that we had going on last year. I think... Last year, there was a lot of like a lot of time and a lot of work was put into building these quite broad coalitions that included like momentum and like various sections of the left of the Labour Party, as well as kind of obviously feminist anti-fascist assembly was there. Um, you have then you've got think people like another Europe is possible. You've got you've got parts of the FN like you've got these. And these coalitions, by necessity, involved everyone compromising on their politics. Like, no one can, in a group with that diverse politics, like, no one was really got exactly what they wanted. And they're really hard to build. Um, And I think we need to really think on, like, trying to put some serious time and, like, effort back into building up those relationships again. Um, I think there's, yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of of things going on I think, like last year, a lot of those kind of relationships were built between a by and between a very select group of people, very particular people who knew, personally knew, or had connections to other people in other organisations who could like leverage things and make make it kind of make it happen. And that's that's obviously one way of building a coalition, which is. Um, but there's also another way, which is like building like a popular kind of groundswell of like ordinary members, which I feel like is a more like productive path to go down. Um, it was heartwarming to see for the 24th, a number of um, Hackney and a number of like Labour and Momentum kind of groups saying, we're going to this Laffer demonstration, we're going to meet up here and we're going to go together. And if we could replicate those kind of things across London, then we would have, or like kind of like necessity, by necessity, have many more people coming because there'd be many more people coming from different parts of London. Um, and you're totally right, you're totally right about the compromise thing. Like people need to kind of, this is about, ultimately it's about stopping the far right and fascism from effectively organising and staging these these demonstrations. And the only way to do that is to uh, drop a certain part of your politics to work with other people. There's no, there's literally no other way about doing it. You can't be like a, a purist about this really, I feel. Should we talk about the kind of the, on a more kind of general level, what we think the kind of big, uh, important functions of an anti-fascist organisation are? So one of them is obviously doing demos, right? One of them is obviously like organising for anti-fascist marches, most of which follow the kind of rhythm of the far right. Like when there's a far right demo, there's an anti-fascist demo. That's one of the kind of big functions. Obviously, you're going to break that up into sort of different functions, aren't below that. But there are actually many more things that anti-fascist organisations could do. I think... There's a lot to be said for moving. And I think this is what's been happening in our internal conversations a lot about wanting to move beyond being reactive. Being reactive is really tiring. Um, and like often like it feels like like obviously like the ground zero of our politics is stopping fascists organising in the streets. But um, but like I don't personally really like big like central London set pieces like um I think they're really important that we do them, but they're not, I don't think they should be the be all and end all of our politics. I think there should be a lot more community organising going on, um, which is something we talk about doing a lot and then um, don't do because we get distracted by another central London set piece. Um, 
I think what I personally would like to see would be kind of community meals in neighbourhoods in London um, and ways of kind of bringing communities together in, yeah, in an anti-fascist space, but um, making it very like open so i, I think uh, education is also a massive part of like an anti-fascist organization i feel like mm. there's a there's a very small group of people like even within anti-fascism who know a lot about it mm. about like far-right groups and how they work and and who knows who and who is beefing with who and how we can exploit those things um and we need to be educating ourselves about these groups and we also need to be educating um like uh, the wider kind of wider left and the wider london population i feel like there's, there's many reasons why people don't want to come on demonstrations if they don't feel like it's necessary, but also if they don't, like literally they don't know about it happening or they don't know who these people are or why they're demonstrating or what their politics are, they're much less likely to, you know, see a free, to- stop free, to- stop Tommy. And if you think, oh, Tommy Robinson, he was a thing five years ago, like, well, there's no point. And so I feel like a lot of La- a lot of what Laffer could be doing is he's kind of like... Um, workshops where people can learn about these things along with the kind of community aspect to the like more social um kind of positive relationship building which um you know it's practiced quite successfully also by i think we should remember women's strike assembly who have done these like um in the build-up to the uh women's strike there uh, did these kind of assemblies but combined with like kind of crushes and and kind of other kind of events which knitted together a certain certain group of people to, to be able to pull off this thing and i feel like we could be doing things like that on an ongoing basis yeah um on also what women's strike assembly does another put my other hat on uh of they of actually running stay and plays as a form of where just like which was done on march 8th but with a political conversation march 8th is international women's yeah Thank you. Um, but so it gives the space of, of like mothers who normally are not going to make it out to like wherever, but doing local ones where people live. And we had some really great conversations. And I think that's a potentially a really effective way forward as well. I mean, for me, the thing is like, like I'm not an anti-fascist theory buff. Like, I don't know all the, you know, like the, the histories behind that and all of that. Like my main interest is like the organizing itself and the strategies within that. Um, and I don't necessarily know all of the groups or their particularities, but like my thing is more like, how is the group organized? How do we get this done? What's missing? How, what do we need to do to make that happen? How do we uh, make sure that people don't burn out? Um, how do we have enough people that uh, some people don't end up doing all of the work and um, get really exhausted? Um, how does it reliably keep on? Um, what do we need to do so that when there is another counter demonstration uh, that we need to do, that people still keep on working on the background stuff? And we need like people who do the background research. Um, and like there aren't so many skills that people can bring into that, but I think a lot of people don't even realize what kind of transferable skills they have that they could bring. Um, and a lot of it has to do with um, confidence that people don't think that they know enough or can do enough and don't know what the tasks are that uh, <clears throat> they could be doing. Um, and that's something that we need to build, like we need to build the people's confidence of like just 
ask if you want to do something ask if you can you know like volunteer for something and and we can give you a task and we can show you how to do it so and you know like when we do demos we need like stewards and we need uh, medics and we need this and that um so there are so many areas where we should be doing the hopefully, training in. hopefully we'll also have some open trainings for some of those skills coming up soon that i think that's in the pipe works loosely yeah. I mean, there's a few obvious things that, that Laffa could be doing. I'm not making any prescriptions, but obviously we had Laffa had two assemblies already, and I feel like maybe it's due another one, um, mm. which yeah, we're, we're currently kind of kind of affirming kind of things where people came together, um, and we could make much better use of those things. I feel like the regional kind of meetings would also be useful, and that kind of granular coalition building work where you like just reach out to every single group in a local area you can think of and that's like broadly broadly defined as like labor left momentum onwards to community groups and whatever and try and get them into a room and get them talking and and start building those kind of relationships i think is an also another useful function of laffer so people who have been inspired by listening to this talk of the multiplicity of things there are to do in laffer where can they contact you um facebook Twitter, Instagram, or our email, uh, londonaffa at riseup.net. Like, I think one, one thing that we don't talk about enough is that a lot of people are scared of Antifa and their image. Like, antifascism is a scary word for a lot of people, um, and they don't understand what it actually means. Why, why do you think that is? Because they just see this, you know, like, the, the image uh, that they have of that is, like, of black block, and that their primary purpose is violence. And they don't understand the reasons of it, and they don't understand that uh, anti-fascism is much, much more than uh, just going out on the streets um, and opposing the far right. Like there's so much more to it. Of course, uh, like yeah, I just want to add the caveat that like kind of physical force fascism, anti-fascism, or like you know violent anti-fascism, obviously is necessary as well I feel. yeah yeah like i'm not um like that's not the message that i want to put out that it isn't it's it's it is essential that we have the black block and they are really um, important um and they're important at the demos uh, to keep people safe because you know like when when they're the far right um manage to kind of like run down a side street and try to attack people the black block is there to keep the other people the more vulnerable people at the demos safe like they're the defensive line. I think also that very specific image of anti-fascism is coming a lot from the media and especially it's actually like transposing a lot of what's gone in in the US in like really interesting. There was like essentially like a US like media scare about Antifa, which they say in a really weird way. I think um, the reason why they say it in a weird way is because of the same reason why they call it marijuana. It's yeah. because it was attempt to make it kind of more more like foreign in the early 20s. Yeah, like Antifa, um, which sounds like this big scary thing that no one that you don't know what it is, and the media is telling you it's bad. And I think that conversation has like been transported. I think very deliberately. I mean, a lot of the far right groups in the UK are directly funded by groups in the US. So like, there's a also like quite an easy narrative that's been transported across the Atlantic. I think. And it's interesting, actually, just when you bring that up, that. Um, the far-right kind of journalist, in inverted commas, Andy No, was at the 24th demonstration in central London taking photos, make a video, accused you in laughter of... That was of, so bizarre. Of blocking roads and setting off smoke flares as if 
you basically you saying you were protesting i guess but uh, the, the, the thing is like 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 his whole videos and and threads uh, online like he didn't even manage to say anything bad about us it was they walked on the streets they protested uh, traffic didn't couldn't go through but that was kind of it but to so his, he couldn't even spin it in, in any but to his audience way. that's enough isn't it like that video because like he's targeting a very specific audience who have already decided that anti-fascist bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. You're right. He's speaking, he's speaking to a particular audience, and I feel like it is quite significant that he came over, um, and he does speak to that kind of transportation of like there's a wider kind of criminalization of anti-fa, which Shane Burley has talked about in relation to like the Green Scare in the early 2000s in America, where. Um, he's kind of positing that the next kind of scare is going to be an anti-fascist scare where um, a lot of people are going to be like put away for a certain amount of time. And it's it's something that needs to be guarded against for sure. I, I feel like we did an episode, a whole episode on Andy, Andy No, and um, I feel like he's not, he's not a person who can be going away anytime soon, especially when we've had these revelations about him of like being inside planning meetings of like Patriots Prayer and the Proud Boys and, and being that kind of unofficial PR person releasing their, their reports and, and, and going on scouting things for them and stuff. He's, 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 he's quite an effective kind of figure in that he is treated from CNN to Fox to CBS to all these other like actual journalists instead of who he is, which is a, a far-right activist. So thank you for talking to us, Ella and Lily. Um, if you really like what you heard or you want to support the show in any way, you can uh, follow us on Twitter um, or you can uh, uh, give us money on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash 12 rules for what? And you can give as little as $2, but you can also now give $5 a month or even $10 a month. There are some great perks. We have a SoundCloud uh, and you can follow us on all the kind of podcast um uh, platforms. It's also really helpful if you just recommend us to your friends or quote tweeters. Uh, our handle is at twelve or what. That really does help us gain a profile and uh, help more people find the show and listen to it. And you know, and very soon there's going to be a very big, exciting change in the twelve rules for what ecology. Uh, I'm not going to give you any more information. It's we're just gonna we're branching out there. into new territory. Twelve rules. <laughs> 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 <laughs>